This week on the show, we cover OpenBSD 7.1 and what's new in there, building your own FreeBSD-based NAS, second part. Let's try V on OpenBSD, the language. Waiting for Randot, compiling an OpenBSD kernel 50% faster, a salute for 10 plus years of service, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 454, compiling 50% faster. Recorded on, yes, May the 4th, 2022. Be with you. Um, this episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash now to find the online backup for truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show or remove ads for yourself, then you can do this by going to patreon.com slash now and pick an option that fits you or that you like and support this show this way. Thank you for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. And this is especially not the episode you are not looking for. Uh, so I'll try to mix a couple of Star Wars quotes in here because made of How many did you prepare, Benedict? A, a couple of them. So you have to endure <laughs> all of them. We're not finishing until the list is done. See, now the listeners know it's not spontaneous. <laughs> right? It's No Moon, it's a BSD Now episode, and it has headlines. Well, that already started <laughs> off well. Uh, OpenBSD 7.1 is out. I think you're really underplaying this. So uh, OpenBSD has, the, it's not their seventh <laughs> first release, though, is it? Because they like, they skipped some. Uh, oh, the new OpenBSD release at uh, 7.1. OpenBSD do two releases a year. Um, and they don't have point releases as you might think of them. So this is an entire release of, a, of an operating system. And I think the big headline feature there. Uh, have highlighted for this release is support for Apple Silicon Macintoshes. Ooh. And then they have a big list of stuff coming. And so the first point says uh, support for Apple Silicon Macs has improved and is ready for general use. They added the Apple SPI and Apple HI dev drivers for the SPI controller, um, an M1 system on a chip and the keyboard touchpad on M1 laptops. Um, Power management drivers, um, added chip IDs for the uh, M1 Pro and Max, which are the, the most recent processors, rewrote kernel uh, FPU code to fix random crashes, uh, PCI stuff, um, drivers for uh, an SMC, which I don't know what that stands for, um, a new monarchically controlled oscillator that make a great synthesizer component. Um, uh, digital amplifiers, DMA drivers, tons of stuff for the, the Apple Silicon Macs. And I think when they say that it's ready for general use, they are, they're sincere about that. Cause it coincides really well with the release of, uh, Ashi Linux as well, which is where the, the port has been going on. There's also been big changes in ARM 64, um, including a bunch of support for the Pinebook Pro and, um, the specific hardware there. And so they've hooked up a GPIO charger, GPIO LEDs and GPIO keys. Uh, which allow uh, interaction with some of the hardware on the Pinebook Pro uh, and then power buttons and, and the like. Um, and then changes on other architectures. Um, UHID and FIDO have appeared on um, RISC-V 64. That's a, that's a cool change to see. Um, a bunch of other RISC-V improvements, um, the, the link or code, fixed RISC-V LLD link code when dealing with object files created with LD, um, a bunch of other changes there. And then stepping out wider, there's been various kernel improvements. 
Um, the one that jumped out to me is if CPU sleep state S4 is not available, use S5 for ACPI transitions and hibernate support. I don't know what that means. Um, S4 is hibernate in implemented hardware. S5 is shutdown. So it, it, it works without hardware support for that. Um, there've been SMP improvements. So um, yeah, improvements to multiprocessing. Uh, it's really worth coming through and looking at the uh, release notes just to see the massive changes they have. Um, updates to the direct rendering manager, including um, Intel DRM support for Elkhart Lake, Jasper Lake, and Rocket Lake, and AMD GPU support for Van Gogh, Rembrandt, uh, Navi, um, 2.2, Navi 2.3, and Navi 2.4. Um, updates to VMM, VMD, which is the hypervisor framework. Um, Switch was retired, which is uh, a bit sad to see because, oh, was it Switch that offered the promise of um, SDN in OpenBSD? Um, and it was a cool proof of concept, but then it never really went beyond that. Um, fixes to VMM. So hopefully VMM will be working better. And uh, reintroduce support for VMCTL start B net B BSD.RD, which emulates Pixie boot and performs an auto install, which sounds like a great way to do um, VMD installations. New user land features, um, various bug fixes and tweaks in user land, um, improved hardware support and drivers and bug fixes, new and improved network hardware support, added or improved wireless driver support. Uh, improved Wi-Fi stack support, network stack support, installer upgrades, security improvements, rooting daemons, and other user land. Um, yeah, and there's a note here, SwitchD, the software-defined um, S-Flow controller was removed, while interesting, the OpenFlow implementation never made it into a usable state. Um, and yeah, I think these release notes are great to look at. It's really impressive they managed to even compile such a big list from a development log is is a serious task. Oh, uh, yes. It's great to see uh, big steps forward to OpenBSD. Yep. Plus the typical OpenBSD release song and artwork. The song? I didn't listen to the song. Uh, not yet, but uh, the artwork looks interesting because it's a familiar picture from Japan. Ah, and the artwork is Puffy at the beach. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Surfing on a great tsunami. <laughs> <laughs> it's the tsunami of changes encoded in the OpenBSD 7.1 release notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so congratulations, OpenBSD, to another fine release. Uh, but don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. Building your own FreeBSD-based NAS with ZFS Part 2 is insignificant to... Well, the power of the source. Um, we're covering the second part of the Clara article. We covered the other episode. Uh, this is part two. And uh, it continues where they left off building this FreeBSD-based NAS with ZFS. And there's the first question, so why vanilla FreeBSD? Right? Perfectly good question to ask, given that several FreeBSD-based NAS distributions are readily available, ranging from completely open source to pre-built with customer support plans, the question naturally arises, they write here, why not just use a FreeBSD-based NAS distro rather than building your own? After all, someone else has done the work to tune FreeBSD and most solutions provide a nice GUI for configuring the various NAS options. Pre-built NAS solutions will only offer a small selection of hardware choices which may or may not meet your needs. While some vendors offer customized hardware builds, if you already know what you want for hardware, you can build it yourself without adding the cost of a middleman to build it for you. 
there's that. Configuring a NAS on top of your own FreeBSD installation also means that you don't have the overhead of running a GUI or learning where to perform the various configuration options from that GUI. In practical terms, NAS configuration is mostly a one-time thing that is easy enough to perform from the command line. Ongoing maintenance and monitoring can also be achieved from the command line or with the tools that you already have in place for maintaining your other FreeBSD systems. Most software bugs for NAS solutions tend to be for the GUI. Uh, taking it out of the equation means that you aren't waiting for the solutions provider to provide usability and security patches. And of course, you should subscribe to the FreeBSD security notifications mailing list to be informed about any critical patches that are issued for the operating system and its subsystems that are in use in your NAS, like NFS or iSCSI. Uh, and uh, overall, uh, that could affect your NAS configuration. So another uh, item that we have here is before you install your FreeBSD system, you should ensure a couple of things. Uh, here, it should be large enough to hold the logs. Don't uh, underestimate that, unless you'll be configuring the system to save logs to a separate device or another system, like a log server. And it should also be able to hold a few boot environments to be able to jump back in time if something went wrong. A mirrored pool also may save some unexpected downtime should this operation or the operating system uh, device fail. Yeah, so that's uh, not to be underestimated. And yeah, good to think about these. But there's also a section about disabling unneeded periodic scripts. If you're unfamiliar with FreeBSD's periodic system, uh, they have a separate article on Clara systems about that. But disabling the general purpose maintenance scripts, which aren't suited for a NAS, will reduce the performance hit from running them unnecessarily. For example, several scripts run find across all of your data, your big data, your big collection of whatever you have. What find is looking for might be appropriate for internet facing systems or systems with multiple user accounts. However, you probably don't want it trawling through terabytes worth of NAS storage on a daily, weekly or monthly schedule. Probably not. So it's easy enough to determine which scripts are using find. Grab minus capital R, find, and then etc periodics uh, and, and all uh, the subscripts. There it will display which ones are the ones that have find in them. Uh, you should also review the ZFS periodic scripts. One of the non-default scripts which you want to enable is the ZFS scrub scheduler. There's the daily underscore scrub underscore ZFS underscore enable. You can set that to yes. And there's also a threshold um, set or a script that sets the scrub to run every 35 days so that your pool is checking its uh, checksums on a regular basis. Then there's a section on the FreeBSD network configuration about jumbo frames. This might push you uh, a couple of better uh, network bits and bytes around, but the overall network needs to be uh, capable of doing that. All the network hardware that you have needs to be able to support 9,000 MTU values or uh, such a value. Uh, and so make sure that this works. Otherwise, you will get interesting networking or non not working. Link aggregation is also something you will want to look at for failure or uh, load balancing purposes or just round robin between your various uh, networking um, devices that you have. And so you can switch between the two for either fallback or bonding these together. There's bonding on, on Linux. That's what it's called. I just worked on this yesterday at work. Um, so this is also a way to use uh, the link aggregation.
there's another section on OpenZFS performance tuning. A shift value comes into mind because when creating a pool, you want to use disks with the same sector size as a pool comprised of disks with different sector sizes, which can result in poorer performance and inefficient spatial utilization. So make sure that everyone gets the proper A shift set. Uh, in other words, A shift 9 tells ZFS that the underlying disk sectors contain two to the power of nine bytes each. And with that, setting a value of 9 means that the disks use a sector size of 2 to the power of 9, which is 512 bytes. But setting that to a value of 12 means 2 to the power of 12 is 4K. And for higher disks or more modern ones, even a value of 13, you could support 8K sectors. That could be an interesting experiment. Yeah. Uh, record size is mentioned as well as A time. So most of these systems nowadays don't use A time anymore. So you could disable that for getting a little bit of performance out for not doing an extra IO every time a file is accessed. They have also a next time thing. This is probably going to part three, uh, where they try to cover, or will definitely cover NFS, Zamba, and iSCSI. Very nice. Okay, next we have the, the news roundup. And first in the news, we have an article from uh, Brian Callahan, who you might remember from an interview we did with him last year. Um, oh, yes, been a while. Oh. Yeah, time vanishes. Uh, and, and Brian writes from his blog, let's try V on OpenBSD. A long time ago, I submitted a patch for V. And then I mostly found out about V. Forgot that I mostly forgot about V. GitHub recently reminded me of his existence. Let's see if V still works on OpenBSD. I'm going to build it, see if it is easily able to be made into a port, and then try some of their upstream developed programs. About V, V builds itself as a simple, fast, safe, and compiled language for developing maintainable software. Somehow it has already produced a 408 page textbook on the language, garnered nearly 30,000 stars on GitHub as of the blog post and created a developer community of over 500 contributors who have committed nearly 13,000 commits. For comparison, D, which is also a language, uh, has a little under 60,000 commits, with a contributor with somewhere between 400 and 800. D splits their code over three repos, which makes exact numbers more difficult to ascertain, and about 4,400 stars on GitHub. But D has been around since 1999, whereas V began life in 2019. I don't know much about V or its community, but it did not take long to discover that apparently V has been a bit controversial. Z Lasso wrote a series of three blog posts dealing harsh but fair criticism, which ultimately led to her being blocked by the V team on at least Twitter. The last part seems very unacceptable. Accepting, confronting, interacting, and responding to criticism, even harsh criticism, is something we need to do in order to be better. And I don't read Z's posts as crossing the line into vindictive. As a side note, if you read my blog and don't read hers, you should. The other large criticism I see is that V and its creator overpromise and underdeliver. And yes, a quick perusal of the website suggests this, but as long as the rest of V community is enjoying working on V and no one is getting hurt, then whatever there are more, whatever there are more important things to worry about. Building V. It was nice to see that building V was very straightforward. All I had to do was clone the repository and run make. The make file took care of building the bootstrap compiler and then building a stage two and a stage three V compiler. Running dot slash V after make finished worked fine and brought me to the V REPL. And the V REPL has ASCII art of the letter V, but also lots of letter Vs, like welcome to V for V. Um, all right, 
no Vs in the ASCII R for V though. Uh, all right, fine. They want me to use V as a compiler, no problem. Um, they also really seem to want to use TCC as the backend C compiler. V is one of these languages that transpiles to C and then uses a C transpiler to generate native code. This is the same technique we use for our PL slash O zero compiler. I'm not sure what that language is called. I'm guessing that this is how VT gets away with claiming a compilation speed of approximately 1 million lines of code per second. I'm not very convinced that compilation speed is so important that it needs to be elevated to the second item in the key features list, unless V is a simple prototyping language. Doubly true if we're using TCC to achieve those speeds, since it's well known that TCC is extremely fast. It is not quite as performant as Clang or GCC, though TCC by my unscientific testing is more performant than I thought it would be. I would much rather have a safe language that creates performant binaries first, and then the compilation speed is a nice bonus. I don't think there are millions of lines of V out in the world at the moment. In any event, I used the OpenBSD Clang compiler that comes with the system. I did not experience anything near what was promised in compilation speed, even taking into consideration the approximately 110,000 lines per second compilation speed claimed when using Clang. And there's a, there's a big uh, time output from gtime make. Uh, gtime is GNU time. I don't know why anyone would use that. Uh, oh, and Brian says, by the way, gtime is my OpenBSD port of GNU time. Doesn't explain why he uses it. Um, you can get a copy of the port here. Also, this is using the internet connection from day job. So cloning git, uh, git cloning time was fairly negligible uh, because the make file pulls stuff down from the internet. So is that uh, 110,000 lines per second compilation with Clued only valid when using at dash O zero, uh, which turns a whole optimization. If so, why not state that? But then what's the point? The whole point of these production quality compilers is to use their production quality optimizers. And clearly that takes uh, some significant amount of time. The V compiler does have a dash C flags flag that you can use to patch C flags to the backend C compiler. But then the V team should take benchmarks of GCC and Clang with actual production quality C flags. Amendum, addendum, addendum. The founder of V reached out to me to say that he felt I should be using gtime-vv self for a fair comparison, as their website does say these compilation speed claims are for unoptimized builds only. So here is the GNU time output for that, um, gtime-vv self, um, and it says it took 10 seconds to build. A failed attempt at making an OpenBSD V port. I tried making a port for V, but this failed. I'm not entirely sure why. The V compiler complains that it is unable to find some files. It doesn't have this problem when V is built in my home directory. I can post the work in progress OpenBSD port if there's some enterprising individuals who want to try and fix the problem before I get back around to it. The V team also claims to have a native backend that like TCC spits out binaries directly. Unlike TCC, the ELF binaries that V produces are not well formed. Though I summarize, they may work on Linux they won't work on OpenBSD due to their malformedness. So the native, the native backend, even if fast, is a non-starter. I looked at improving the native backend, adding support for support apparatus for OpenBSD was very simple. But teaching V to generate ALF files that report more than zero sections and contain a section table header, among other things, was something I just don't have time for. I suppose the C backend could be good enough. It's the default anyway. Um, and then he goes and looks at two things they have built with V. I tried out two programs written in V. V add, 
the V language editor, graphical editor, and Gitly, a lightweight GitHub GitLab clone. I tried building VED by following the instructions and I got a number of errors. The V standard library had been taught how OpenBSD links X libraries. So I did that and submitted a pull request upstream once I fixed that. I needed to copy some files. Running VED was a lot strange. It hard codes screen sizes. I guess someone has a 2560 by 1480 monitor, though I don't think that's a real resolution, though 2560 by 1440 is. This same person must also have a laptop with a 1414 by 900 resolution, which is at least a real resolution, though I don't think a very common one. My machine has a 1920 by 1080 screen, so I use a smaller resolution, which can be had by issuing both the dash window and the dash laptop flag to VD. I also added the dash dark flag to run in dark mode, which I find much easier on the eyes. The editor itself seems to want to both be VI and Emacs at the same time, according to its key bindings. It's modal, but you use C combination uh, control combinations to do things like save and quit. I didn't really like it, but it does work. And a text editor in your own language is a decent maturity test and a good self-containedness test. I could see someone who got very used to VAD key bindings and had a monitor with exactly the right resolution. I only needed a simple text editor and he wanted to do it all in V would probably be happy with VED. It even has rudimentary syntax highlighting, though the syntax highlighting is only for V, but it happened to do an okay job for C. Uh, Gitly is a lightweight uh, GitHub uh, GitLab clone written in V. They claim it can run well on the cheapest Amazon LightSail virtual server, which for $3.50 US a month, $42 a year, is actually a pretty good deal for self-hosting your own open source projects if you want to do so in the cloud. You still need to pay for a domain. I built Gitly by following the instructions and that's when I ran into my first problem. Gitly by default only runs on HTTP localhost 8080, which is fine if you only want to connect from the same machine hosting the server, but I want to be able to connect to the server from all my home machines on my home network, and which would mean the server listening on um, 192.168.0.104.8080 its IP address on my home network. This was odd as I eventually tracked it down to this line and then looked up the documentation only to be told that the run method starts a new VW V web server listening on all available addresses at the specified port. But that clearly wasn't the case. Perhaps it is a simple fix to put the OpenBSD somewhere in the V web code. I do not know. I noticed the run at method could specify a host that would be limited to that host. That would be fine for me. However, the documentation gets the example wrong. The signature is correct. Don't try to use vwebrun.app uh, app localhost1899, like the example code says is, as it is wrong. Instead, you need to create a new run param structure. The other change I had to make was a mechanical change to turn all references to the master branch into the main branch. All my repositories on GitHub use the main branch and Gitly will absolutely refuse to display any code if the branch, main, branch names don't match. There's the diff um, for, for Gitly. Uh, and now I could run Gitly and connect it on all of my machines. It creates a SQLite 3 database on first launch. And once you navigate to the site using your browser of choice, it automatically detects this as a new instance and has set up an admin account. This is where missing features began to see began to seem too big to overcome for now, but I could create a new empty repository. I could not push anything to it. This is a known issue. Um, you can import GitHub repositories and I tested importing O, which I don't know what O is. 
Um, and that worked fine. There's some rudimentary syntax highlighting, but only for C, C++, Go, JavaScript, Python, TypeScript, and V. Additionally, there is no support for markdown formatting. I like the color scheme, but would prefer a dark mode. Um, the bigger issues began to roll in. The pull request button led to a 404, a known issue. The up button fatally crashes the server. Readme.md files do not display on the repository page. The history page poorly formats commit messages, so you can only see the first line. And there appears to be no way to clone a repo or even download individual raw files. So it is for now, just for displaying code to others, a Gitly implemented push and clone system, I can live with it with all the other flaws. Um, v, as a conclusion, V was an interesting language to try. It's important to remember that it's still very immature. I mean, it's only two years old. Um, it might be very fruitful playground for someone who wants to be part of the startup of work of getting a programming language off the ground and establishing its first few killer apps. It right now probably isn't for someone who needs stability and battle testedness, but if development keeps up at the pace it is, then it may well become a good choice for those people sooner rather than later. For me, I'd like to figure out why it is the vport isn't working and I'd like to see Gitly get to the point where it can really be used. I think I'll skip on VET because it's not for me. I'm a happy VI user, but it's clearly for someone. I'll keep V on my list of languages to keep tabs on and hopefully we can watch it develop into an interesting language. Oh yeah, never heard about this. So interestingly enough, while I was pondering the question, who's the more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows it, I found this NetBSD. Uh, mailing list entry named waiting for Randot or Nia and Maya were right and I was wrong from Taylor R. Campbell, which we found interesting to mention here. So Taylor writes here, many of you have no doubt noticed that a lot more things hang waiting for entropy than used to on machines without hardware random number generators, even as we've added a bunch of new drivers for HWRNGs like Python and Firefox. Uh, this is NetBSD, uh, remembered, so that they need to support any kind of disk, uh, not disk, <laughs> machines that don't have these. So that's why this discussion came up. This is related to the adoption of the get random system call from Linux, which we adopted with the semantics that get random uh, with a P, N, and zero as parameters will block until the kernel is certain there is enough entropy for security. In retrospect, based on experience with the change, such as the following threads and bugs that are listed in the thread as well, um, they think adopting jet random with this semantics was a mistake. It's certainly a problem when keys are generated with too little entropy, like for factorable.net, but it's um, interestingly clear that the middle of an application trying to get something else done is not a good place for hanging until someone plugs in a USB hardware random number generator. Okay, uh, there's a fair point. Such an application like a Python program in the middle of just doing important multiprocessing is not in a position to remedy the situation or even usefully alert an operator to the problem. To better address the system integration, uh, they added hooks in ETCRC and ETC security for alerting the operator to the problem with entropy. Like setting entropy equals check in ETCRC.conf will abort the multi-user boot and enter single user mode if there's not enough entropy before starting any network service or setting entropy equals weight will make multi-user boot hang caveat there possibly indefinitely and the other item is the daily etc security script will check for entropy and send an alert citing the new entropy man page in the security report we might also do something similar with the message of the day add a single line citing entropy for more details if there's not enough entropy okay well uh, or with these in mind 
they propose that we change get random with p and zero as parameters so that it does not block under the premise that dealing with that low entropy is a system and integration problem not a problem that it is helpful to ask an application to resolve in the heat of the sampling moment uh, programs can still pull def random or get random as a uh, well function call if testing for entropy is actually their goal but the default recommended choice for all applications to generate keys which is get random with p and zero as parameters will not i also propose we introduce never blocking get entropy like nia at briefly did last year as an alias for get random p and zero as parameters soon to be in posix under the premise that the never block semantics from the original in openbsd is justified again by treating low level or low entropy as a system integration problem and they were asking for thoughts and there was a healthy discussion going on uh, to discuss this problem there's ps down there previous discussions about get random get entropy blocking and changes to the kernel entropy subsystem for netbsd 10 are also in further threads linked from it i wonder, I wonder how openbsd does this freebsd has a, a boot file with some entropy just pre-made that we refresh i think on every reboot yeah i think openbsd has a couple more things in there to actually get good random sources because they kind of rely heavily on this i can imagine but, oh, okay. Speaking of OpenBSD, next up we have uh, a blog post from Ted Unangst, which I've said. Is it Unangst or Unangst? Because Alan, I think. Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. We'll see. Unangst? I don't. Someone will. Maybe someone will tell <laughs> Probably, us. Probably. Surely. I, I mean, I was sat here thinking. We had him in the past, on. Should have looked this up. <laughs> anyway, um, this article is titled Compiling an OpenBSD Kernel 50% Faster. Uh, and Ted writes This is approximately as wise as taking off from Mars in a rag talk drag top rocket but don't worry the math all checks out my theory is that compiling less code will be faster than compiling more code but first we need to find the code so we know not to compile it the openbsd kernel has a total of 6.93 million lines and 383.41 megabytes of code that's counting ch and s files but excluding make files so minor aux scripts and the like we can break that down by directory. For example, the virtual memory directory, UVM, is 29,000 lines and 816 kilobytes. The Arch subtree, which contains all the machine-dependent CPU and platform support, is 729,000 lines and 20 megabytes. By far, the largest directory is dev, housing most device drivers, at 5.69 million lines and 348 megabytes. Uh, that's, that's a lot of it. Uh, specifically, uh, dev, PCI, DRM, AMD contains 3.3 million lines and 273 megabytes. 71% of OpenBSD kernel by size is support for modern and semi-modern semi Radeon graphics. Older models are supported by relatively featherlight at uh, 201,000 lines and six megabyte DRM Radeon driver. A lot of this code is just header files filled with enums like azelia underscore f0 underscore codec underscore input underscore pin underscore parameter underscore audio underscore widget underscore capabilities underscore type underscore volume underscore knob underscore reserved, which is assigned four times in four headers, but it's always six if you're curious but never used in a C file. So the impact on compile times is probably not as bad as it first appears, but it's still not great. We're going to be pouring hundreds of megabytes of text through the lexer, thought not of all, though, 
Not all of it will result in expensive code gen. Let's start. Here are some numbers to start. Compiling a current kernel on my laptop takes five minutes to create a 22 megabyte kernel. Um, four minutes, 40 seconds, uh, 0.69 of a second. Um, let's cut those numbers down by excluding all the AMD GPU code. The simple approach would be to edit the makefile to remove uh, all its objects, but someone in the internet told me makefiles are scary because they contain tabs. And my god, the horror, the correct approach would be to run config after editing the kernel config, but the plot restricts us from doing that. Peak dumb. If we need to compile all the same object files, we can at least put the least amount of code into them, compile one empty file, and use the resulting object file for everything we want to replace. Uh, there's a small script here. Uh, echo into dummy.c, cc-c dummy.c, and then for the files in the DRM AMD directory, copy that empty file there. I initially comp uh, compiled a new blank file for each O file, but that's really slow. Uh, it would be even faster to use ln, but I'm worried about overflowing the link count. Now we may, now we, now we just run make to build the rest of the kernel as normal. This won't result in a functional kernel yet. We'll discover at the end that some symbols required to link are missing, but there are very few. We need to create one stub C file with the missing references. There's a stub here and it's got AMD GPU probe um, and a structure for attaching with driver. And that's all the rest of the kernel needs to know about the AMD GPU driver. And now we have a complete set of objects and symbols that links. Once a set of dummy objects has been generated in about two seconds, I'm down to three minutes to compile a 16 megabyte kernel. Uh, and it's three minutes, 12 seconds. That's a 31% reduction in build time. Good enough to compile nearly 50% more kernels per hour and a similar improvement in size. The gains aren't directly proportional to the driver size because despite its vol voluminous text, it doesn't all turn into machine code. For reference, a build with AMD GPU configured out of the kernel, the proper way has identical numbers. Yep. Um, limit break. I started on this nightmare quest after reading a mailing list post regarding memory use while relinking the kernel during boot. I generally agree with the thread conclusion. If you want to relink, you need sufficient memory. And if you don't want sufficient memory, you need to not relink. But today the bad idea circus is in town. Uh, less object code should mean less memory required to link. The original size of all object files and the data limit required to link the kernel. Below this limit, linking fails with out of memory errors. Um, some stuff with ulimit. Um, with some more effort, we could create additional zombie objects for other large drivers. Although by now the keen observer has noticed that as big as kernels are, they are substantially smaller than the set of object files going into them. Object files are so large because the kernel is initially compiled with debug symbols. They are stripped out after linking. We can strip them out beforehand. After running strip-g, the required memory is substantially reduced. And so it's gone down from 165 to 110,000 to 55,000. I literally only know how to debug with printf, but other developers might not prove. Conk. I was curious what would be involved in editing a post-compilation kernel to remove large drivers. I will now be painting this technique to prevent anyone else from doing something so idiotic. You should find yourself stranded on a remote planet and your last means to re-establish communication with Earth is relinking an OpenBSD kernel in only 32 megabytes. We can work out a license in exchange for a cut of your book deal. And <laughs> I, I checked while reading this if this was April 1st. I don't understand why any of this occurred. It's, it's a great blog post. I love it, but... Mm. But, but what? <laughs> no one can tell me why. 
<laughs> we'll never know. But soon the OpenBSD compile will make the Kessel run faster than nine parsecs. Um, Do you have enough for the two shows we're recording today? <laughs> yeah, I can push it a little bit more. <laughs> um, well, we also have sad news in this one. So it appears, or we heard, that after 10 years about BSD uh, seems to have become one with the source. Uh, and they have a all good things must come to an end message here. We had to pull this from archive.org because apparently the site has already disappeared. But it's about, about BSD.net. And this article here says, more than 10 years ago in 2010, about BSD.net was created for scratching my need for BSD-related news in a one-stop site convenience. It's also an exercise for me to explore how to maintain a public-facing server. Fast forward, life have an... Outgr uh, outgrown my spare time slowly but surely oh yes we've all been there i no longer find the spare time for about bsd.net anymore sad to announce it about yeah, about bsd.net will be shutting down by may which by the time of this recording has happened thanks to those who have allowed me to pull news and blogs from this from their site and publish them here Ending this post with links to some of the most popular BSD blogs and news sites. This is OpenBSD's Undeadly, the FreeBSD Foundations. Um, this is the blog, I guess, or the latest news site. Yeah. Then there's Dragonfly BSD Digest and the NetBSD blog. Yeah. So this is, an, I mean, people, it's, uh, if they find that they don't have time, it's good to end it in a good way rather than people waiting for updates to happen. And so thank you for. Uh, the time you provided the news for everyone in a central location and uh, good luck with your future endeavors. Uh, before we head into the feedback and questions land of this episode, we should mention the sponsor for this episode, which is Tarsnap. Tarsnap gives you all the ways of securing your backups before they leave your computer. And that's the important differentiator to other backup solutions. Backup solutions, there are a lot of them out there, but most of them are either very non-transparent and you kind of don't know how they work or what kind of encryption is employed. And if the people that can get to the backups can encrypt or unencrypt them. With Tarsnap, it's different. Your data is encrypted and uh, with a special key that's on your machine and probably never leaves the machine. Um, uh, there's also some stuff that Tarsnap does to find unique blocks. So it uh, removes the actual data that is redundant from the uh, files you want to back up. It compresses the blocks. And then after it's done all this and encoded the data with the encryption key, then it leaves your computer, not before. So only things that hit the web or AWS cloud in this case, where the backups are stored, only backups that are encrypted leave your computer and nothing in clear text. And there they sit until one fateful day you need them back. And as long as you still have your key, then you can use Tarsnap to download and unencrypt your encrypted backups. And then you have your precious files back on your machine. Tarsnap provides you all the things. If you have used Tar before, it's very similar, very simple. And you can, this is the paranoid part of things. Uh, the source code for the client is available so you can really scrutinize it and tell oh if there's a backdoor in there or are they reading my key somewhere and sending it to some server somewhere and you will probably not find anything suspicious in there that's why you can trust tarsnap so much that's why we trust it and the pricing model is also very competitive because it's very cheap to even back up a lot of gigabytes of data and because of the way that tarsnap 
segments the data and finds out duplicate data that it already has backed up. It only stores the, the deltas in the subsequent runs if you're doing daily backups or even hourly ones. Figure out uh, that Tarsap also has a lot of different clients available from third parties for the BSDs, for Linux, for macOS, for Sequin, for the Windows subsystem for Windows. So plenty of reasons to use Tarsnap to get started. And that's what we uh, hopefully uh, you do this after you listen us praise Tarsnap for uh, the good stuff that it does. Check out the Tarsnap website documentation where you can try uh, a dry run, for example, so you can see how much it would actually cost without actually don't not we're not doing the backup. And so then you can estimate how much it would cost you and it's pay as you go. So you charge your account up and then over time you use it up and you get an email when you run low on uh, your accounts balance. Check out Tarsnap and let us know if you like the service. Okay, it's time to go into feedback and questions. And I'm fairly sure they are hotter than a certain ice planet called Hoth. Uh, and <laughs> here is the first one. It's Glenn. Uh, two ends in there. Uh, Tom's home lab. Oh, here's back feedback for you. Okay, let me read that. Hi, guys. I really enjoyed the show. Thank you. A big thank you to Tom for his home lab story in episode 447, I think. It was a great... Uh, it was great to hear an idea of the sort of hardware that will work for a home FreeBSD system. And it would be great to hear from other BSD users what is working for them, as Tom outlined in the episode. My current attempt is to use a Nomad BSD Live USB memory stick on my old white MacBook. Oh, that's really old. <laughs> but I've hit a problem with EFI boot and Lua loader invalid arguments. I've outlined below. There's a little bit of output. Uh, being this is an image of Nomad BSD, is there a way to correct this or a command I can type to move the booting forward? I don't have any other version of FreeBSD running to swap a file from an earlier version like I've read elsewhere. Oh, that's from Adelaide, South Australia. Wow, that's a long way from where we are recording this. Yeah, that, that email has traveled really far. Yeah. Well, I, I pull request. Um, I, I don't know if the white MacBooks had 64-bit processors in them. Or EFI loader back then. No, they have uh, UEFI. All the, all the Apple Intel systems had UEFI, uh, had EFI even, sorry. That not. far back? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the... Oh, okay. Uh, whoa, JT's going to tell me off. I think Itanium uh, specified it at EFI, and then Apple was the first sort of major shipping platform. I'm going to say Itanium wasn't a major shipping platform. I I'll take the hate mail. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay so this is not the issue okay so it's the loader line that's off. yeah it, it might just be worth seeing if you can boot a freebsd installer um it might be that it's it yeah but it's trying to open a file yeah i don't know you could try a freebsd installer you could also try a virtual machine to prepare um an image i, I sort of doubt it's nomad bsd it might just be that the macbook's processor is really really old because the you're talking like 2008 is when the unibody max came in and so it's probably from before then so that's hmm. probably the sort of issue you're hitting it's a very old computer um or uh, or reach out to the nomad bsd folks yourself if uh, you don't want to mess around in the kernel bootloader or somewhere else then maybe they know or have an idea how to solve this and uh if they see that they have a a user that who's still interested in running Nomad BSD on that old platform, 
then they'd probably get into EFI just run into 32 I don't know how any of this works I'm really confused um, yeah, yeah. I, I'd ask Nomad BSD. I'd also um, check the it's a 64-bit processor uh, there's some things to do Glenn. Mm. it's not completely yeah unsolvable so thank you for this question we couldn't solve but <laughs> that sometimes happens next up we have feedback from I am a chunky pie uh, about Unix tool writing which is okay sure. uh, Benedict Alan Tom and JT just want to comment on how much I appreciate this nugget-filled episode. Your podcast is already one of, if not the, podcast with the most technical, educational-related content. But this episode really helped me learn so much. I wish oh, I knew what episode they were talking about. I'm teaching myself computer programming and listening to technical podcasts is one of the ways I accelerate that learning. Although some, if not most, technical podcasts do more table talk than actual teaching, I can always rely on your podcast offering something new to learn or be exposed to. Uh, at Tom, listening to you mention on one of the BSD Now's earlier episodes that you were thinking of building a Ryzen 9 system for a build server inspired me to bite the bullet and build my own. Uh, although right now I'm too early in my programming journey to make use of a build machine, right now it's being used as a virtual host for uh, VMs running services for the family and I. Thank you for all you do, Chunky Pie. Thank you, Chunky Pie. Yeah, I read this earlier and I saw that's a great use. I use, I mean, so I have two of these because uh, what's better than one of a thing? Um, and I use one of them for test VMs and for builds. And so I have um, code mounted on NFS and then I can spin up a virtual machine and mount the NFS um, source directories into there. So then I can run the FreeBSD test suite because the test suite is not, um, I'm going to say not, clean to run on a system so you don't want to run it on your host but yeah it's, it's a great use um I, I really like these computers they were not very expensive they are very fast uh, i'm glad to hear mm. you got some benefit out of it uh, we need yeah, to but... do like patreon content where we rate people's home labs or something oh yes that would be nice and i like the approach that he's teaching himself with uh the technical podcasts in addition to his regular learning so that it's a good way of hey this is interesting i should look into this further yeah, it's a, it's a great way to learn um, the technical jargon that you will experience when you speak to actual people. Um, and it's a great way to be experienced with the terminology that you won't get just through reading because you just get the style of an author. Whereas a podcast you get, um, especially with this podcast, you get the way that Benedict and I say things, which is, differs and then the way all of the articles are written. So it's a great way to get like a ton of exposure all at once. Yeah, th mm -hmm. thank you for the feedback. Yep. And uh, last but not least this week is Mike with making routers question. So what's that about? Howdy, fellas. I was excited to hear you mention making routers out of BSD boxes in the last episode because I am working on one of those now. It's nothing special at, as this is my first track crack at it. Just a fifth gen i5. Now that it is up and running, I'm going to dive into PF. But my question is, what do people new to this process usually miss? What should I watch out for? Thanks for all that you do. I, I don't think there's anything. Um, I think you're going to find PF so easy to set up that you're going to wonder what to do next really quickly. Unless you have a really complicated network to play with. Hmm. Um, Maybe also thinking about the hardware, like how much power it will draw because it's running all the time. Yeah, it probably uses a lot of power. Um, if it's like if it's a toy, then you could have a lot of fun trying to get to forward, you know, couple of million packets a second is always in interesting to do and trying to push the limits of what your network cards can do and um, you might experience issues with network cards if they're um lower end 
or have not as good drivers, like uh, some manufacturers that begin with an R that people hate, that I don't understand why. You might see dropouts. Um, yeah, it's good to play with. You should, you should, if you're building your first router, you can really have a lot of fun trying to um, build a test bench to see what the router can actually do. Um, or if you're putting it into production in your house, you can figure out the complexities of running um, filtering so you can block ads at the router and stuff like that. That's really cool. Thank you for the feedback, mm. Mike. Yep. And if you have feedback like this or want to ask us a question of your own, then send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we will feature it in a future episode. So I think we've come to the end of this episode, uh, but I can't let you leave without yet another quote, right? Or should I end? <laughs> so no, no, you already. couldn't do it. I read people poetry. <laughs> you got to so be yeah, you. I could prob- yeah, I should leave people with a bit of words of wisdom. Do or do not. There is no try. That's it. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>